The reading today, today is taken from Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25, and should appear on the screen. The birth of Jesus Christ. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, he took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Well, can you believe it? We are already in the second Sunday of Advent, and as we saw last week, Advent is this period when traditionally, I know we're not that traditional, but traditionally the church looks back to Jesus' first coming and forward to his second coming. And we're going to do that again today by looking at this passage that Anna read to us from Matthew and this account of how the angel announces to Joseph that Mary, his fiancée, is going to have a baby. Now, if you're here, okay, and you are not yet a Christian, it is precisely an account like this that can put the whole message of Christianity into doubt for you, can't it? Because you can hear something like, you know, the virgin birth and think, well, there goes Christianity for me. Because if I have to believe in virgin conceptions and virgin births to be a Christian, then that is Christianity out of the window for me. Because the only reason that these guys believed it was that they were pre-scientific. And we're not. We know better than that. And so to believe this sort of thing today would frankly be ridiculous. Okay, but if you think about it, even if you are already a Christian, okay, things may not be much better for you. Because your doubts about whether this, if you have them, if you, if you have doubts about whether this actually happened, those doubts can be like termites eating away at the foundation of a house. Your doubts can eat away at the foundations of your faith because you might think, man, if the Bible's wrong about this, what else is it wrong about? And yet, the Bible unashamedly tells us that Jesus was born of a virgin. And what I want you to see this morning is that that is not because Mary or Joseph or Matthew who reports it were pre-scientific and they didn't know any better. Okay, like we saw last week. I mean, what was Mary's response when the angel came to her and said she was going to have a baby? Her response was, well, 
how is that going to happen? Because I'm a virgin. And look how Joseph responds, verse 19. He resolved to divorce her quietly. Why? Because if Mary's pregnant and he knows he hasn't had sex with her, she must have been having sex with someone else. So neither Mary nor Joseph nor Matthew who reports it, none of them just go, oh yeah, virgin births. They happen every other day. Of course, we're pre-scientific, that's fine. They know where babies come from. Okay, it is the fact that they react exactly the same way as you might react that should cause you to doubt your doubts. This was as out of this world for them as it is for us. And ask yourself, as Mary herself was um, challenged to consider, if there is a God, why would you think that this is impossible for him? Why would you think that? And is it because that you think that God is like you? That there are some things that are impossible for you, and so there must be some things that are impossible for him. And the reason you stumble over this may be is because you think God is like you. Okay, but the extraordinary thing is, of course, about this story is that it tells us that while God is totally unlike us, he became like us. First point then, he came as saviour. Okay, look at verse 20. The angel appears to Joseph and addresses him as Joseph, son of David. Now, why make that link back to his great ancestor, David? You know, I mean, you know, when you meet somebody, you don't go, um, you know, if I were to meet Lucas, I, I, don't, I don't go to Lucas and say, hi, Lucas, great, 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 great grandson of Bert the Butcher. Do I? What do you do? You go, hi, Lucas, and you move on. Why remind Joseph of his family tree? I mean, right now, Joseph is not thinking about ancient history, is he? He has got other issues on his mind. He's thinking about his current problems. Verse 20 again, as he considered these things, his fiancée is pregnant. And he knows it is not by him. And he's having to work out what on earth am I going to do about this? Okay, so why take him back to his roots? Because he's telling him, Joseph, this event that you are caught up in, this is much bigger than you. Your story, Joseph, is part of a far greater story, the story of the long-promised greater son of David. And Joseph, God is weaving your story into that far greater story. Okay, but think about your own story. Okay, think about the stuff that you're struggling with, maybe at the moment. Maybe there's stuff that keeps you up at night, like Joseph. Okay, maybe, like him, there is something that is preoccupying you at the moment. Or maybe, like him, you are facing something and you are thinking, what on earth am I supposed to do about this? Okay, but like Joseph, whether you realize it or not, okay, you are also caught up in this far greater story, the story 
of what God is doing in the coming of Christ. And it is by finding yourself in this greater story that you can find the hope and the strength and the wisdom to face what you've got to face in your story. You see, look what the angel says next, verses 20 and 21. Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And of course, in Hebrew, Jesus was Yeshua, Joshua. God saves. The Lord is salvation. But what do you think of when you think of being saved? And particularly if you're not a Christian. Don't think in sort of Christian terms necessarily. What do you think of when you think of being saved? You know, when, not long after we uh, first arrived here, we hired some rando skis, some ski touring skis for our girls. We've got four girls, if you don't know us. And back then they were aged, I think, around 14, 12, 10 and 8. And we hired these skis for them and we drove up into the Jura one winter, probably Wednesday afternoon. And we dropped them off at the top of the Jura and we told them to ski down through all the woods, through all the forests, all off piste and to meet us at an agreed point at the bottom. Great thing to do when you're a parent, isn't it? Okay. And Sue and I, we sat in the car at the bottom waiting and waiting. And as time ticked by and the sun began to set, I became increasingly anxious. Sue, of course, was as chilled as a freezer cabinet. Okay, but I was sat there, you know, anxiety levels beginning to go up, thinking, was this such a great idea? And we kept looking up the hills thinking, man, surely, surely they're going to come out of the trees any moment. Okay, but they didn't. And it was getting darker. And the sun was still going down. And I could see it all. We'd have to call Rager, the rescue helicopter, to come and save them. And they'd have to use thermal imaging cameras to find them in the dark. And they'd all get hypothermia and they'd lose their fingers and their feet to frostbite. And it would be all across the newspapers. Children abandoned by negligent father, saved by Rager. And then literally, no exaggeration, as dark was falling, they skied out of the last line of the trees. And dad goes, girls, where were you? Okay, but that is what we tend to think of, isn't it? When we think of being saved, someone's in trouble and we call on the rescue services to save them. It's how David thought about God's salvation. Oh God, incline your ear to me. Hear my words, wondrously show your steadfast love. O saviour of those who seek refuge from their adversaries. You're threatened by something or you are facing some adversary. And David is saying, but God is your saviour. He'll rescue you. He will pull you out of this. Okay, but of course, the adversary that you are facing doesn't have to be physical, does it? A couple of years ago, Erica Commissar, who's an American psychoanalyst and she's not a Christian, she wrote an article in the Wall Street Journal that was entitled, Don't Believe in God? Lie to Your Children. And she wrote, as a therapist, 
I'm often asked to explain why depression and anxiety are so common among children and adolescents. One of the most important explanations, and perhaps the most neglected, is declining interest in religion. This cultural shift already has proved disastrous for millions of vulnerable young people. Nihilism is fertilizer for anxiety and depression. The belief in God, in a protective and guiding figure to rely on when times are tough, is one of the best kinds of support for kids in an increasingly pessimistic world. But not just for kids. Not just for kids. We all need a savior from an increasingly pessimistic world. And you will either try to save yourself from that by fighting against it like a culture warrior, or you'll try and save yourself from it, from the pessimism by trying to ignore it and turning off the news and hoping it all goes away. Or you look to something else as your savior from this pessimistic world. You'll, you'll try and find comfort in something else to fight against the despair, like friends or sport, or chocolate, or alcohol. Okay, but what Commissar is saying is, there is a far better way, a way that has been tested and tried over generations, and that is knowing that God has you safe, and he will keep you safe, that he is your savior from all of the darkness. And yet, if you look at it, Okay, when Joseph, when the angel tells Joseph Jesus is coming as a savior, he's not thinking in terms of human or even psychological adversaries, is he? Verse 21 again. He will save his people from their sins. What does that tell you? That tells you that if you need saving from your sins, your sins must be your great adversary. Your sins, our sins, must be bad news. They must be our adversary. They must be the real threat that we're facing. Our sins must be like getting lost in the mountains in winter at night. That's what our sins must be like. Our sins must be like you are on the verge of drowning and the tide is pulling you out and down and you are out of your depth. Our sins must be like you lying injured and broken, having fallen off a mountain path. And of course, at one level, we know that's true, don't we? Okay, when some sin or some pattern of wrong behavior gets a hold of us and we can't break it or gets a hold of somebody we love, and this is out of control and it is just bringing darkness and hurt, you would welcome someone to pull you out of that. Because you know that you or they can't do it yourself. And the angel says to Joseph, that is exactly what this boy who is going to be born is coming to do. He's coming to save people from their sins. Okay, and yet there's another side to that, isn't there? And that is that the Bible tells us that it's not just that our sins offend against us. It's not just that our sins harm us, it's that they offend against God and that they harm our relationship with him. And if the announcement that you and I can be saved from our sins is good news, 
That is because there's bad news. And the bad news is that we really need saving. And not from ourselves, but from the endless alienation from God that we deserve for walking away from him in the first place. So first point, he will come as saviour. Second point, he will come as judge. Look what Jesus says later in Matthew's Gospel. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Okay, so the angel tells us that Jesus has come to save us from our sins. But Jesus himself tells us that when he comes again, he will come to judge people because of their sin. What does that leave you feeling? What does that do to you on the inside? You see, the problem is, is that we can like the idea of Jesus' first coming, this idea of, of him coming and saving us out of the darkness and the hopelessness of the world and him bringing light and hope. And we can like the idea of him pulling us out of trouble when our lives seem to be spinning out of control and we are put back in control. But we can like it much less. We like the idea much less of him coming again because of the judgment that he will, says he will bring. I mean, think about it. How many of us, you know, how much does anyone like being told that the way that they are living is wrong and they're going to be judged for it? I mean, in today's secular culture, the idea that someone's behavior could be, let alone should be judged, that is viewed as deeply intolerant. And yet, if you're honest, we're all a bit conflicted about this idea of justice and judgment, aren't we? Because we also don't like the idea that abusers or those who have hurt or exploited others, that they just get away with it. In fact, in an age which says, you can't judge me, people express a deep desire for justice and even for retribution. The problem is, is that because our culture no longer believes in a final judgment, people now have to bring that judgment forward into this life and get their retribution now. We want people to pay for their sins now, which frankly is one reason why our societies and our politics is so polarized and frankly judgmental. People have got to be condemned in this life because there isn't another one. Okay, but what does that tell you? It tells you that for all our tolerance, we still want justice, and we still think that people should pay for their sins. It's just we want justice on our terms. We want there to be an accounting. It's just we want it to be others who have to give it. We want people to face the consequences of their sin. We just don't want to face the consequences of our own sin. We want judgment on our terms and the bar to be set at a level where we and our friends get in. 
Okay, but what if when the angel says Jesus will save his people from their sins, he doesn't just mean our psychological darkness or when our lives are spinning out of control. What if he really means what he says? That he will save his people from all of their sins. The sins that explain why the world can be the dark place it is. The sins that explain why our relationship with God is broken and our relationship with others is broken. The sins that leave us under his judgment. What if Jesus really is both saviour and judge? Third point then, last point. He is Emmanuel, God with us. He came to save, he will come to judge he is Emmanuel. Look at verse 22, where Matthew says, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, if you don't know, the context of uh, this prophecy is that around um, 730 BC, Jerusalem was being threatened by an, an alliance of enemy armies. And the people are afraid, and the king's afraid, and they need saving. And through Isaiah, God says to the king, Ahaz, king of Judah, you know, don't look to the military might of Assyria, the superpower, to come and rescue you, to deliver you. But trust in God. Trust God that he will save you. And God offers Ahaz a sign to prove that he will do just that. But Ahaz refuses. And he says, you know, no, no, I couldn't possibly put God to the test. Not because he's this great man of faith, but because he's already decided what he wants to do. I'm going to trust Assyria. Um, no, forget about God. I know where I'm looking. I'm looking to the superpower. I'm looking to Assyria. And Isaiah says, okay, well, God is going to give you a sign anyway. A virgin is going to conceive and bear a son. And before he is, she's going to call him Emmanuel. And before he's grown up, these enemies of yours will be destroyed. But know this, Ahaz, whichever way you turn, God's promise remains. Emmanuel, God is with his people to save them. But what does Ahaz do? He still turns to Assyria, and Assyria does come to his rescue. But in turn, Assyria subjugated and dominated Judah. And Matthew is saying, yeah, and that's the point. That's what always happens. Our sin is the enemy that threatens us, like these foreign armies threatened Ahaz. And just like Ahaz, we need saving. But just like Ahaz, we look everywhere else to all of these other powers to save us. But they end up dominating us. When life feels empty, we try and find fulfillment in our work or relationships or possessions. But make any of those things your ultimate, and they end up possessing you. When life feels out of control, we try and save ourselves through some self-help program, but either it doesn't work and we end up feeling more lost than before, or it does work, but now it's that program that controls you. 
Or we realize that we're distant from God, and so we try harder to live a moral life and to earn his favor. But either we keep on failing, and his favor is strangely elusive, or we think we've succeeded and earned it. But what grows? Pride grows. And so none of these things solve the fundamental problem that's behind it all, that explains why life can be empty and dark, which is our alienation from God, our Heavenly Father. We need something to solve that problem. And it is into that darkness and that emptiness that Christ comes as Emmanuel, God with us. You see, think about it. Joseph is sat there thinking, Mary's pregnant. And someone else, some other guy is the father. And the angel says, no, Joseph, God is the father. Verse 20, that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. This baby, Joseph, is going to be the one, as Paul puts it, in whom the whole fullness of God dwells bodily. And so God steps down into our dark and empty world to experience the world as we know it. And Jesus knows the joys and the lightness and the laughter. And he knows the feasting and the friends of our world. But he also knows the trials and the temptations. Okay, but if you think about it, having a God who sympathizes, who just knows what you are going through, that's still not enough, is it? Because that still doesn't get you out of the dock. It doesn't resolve the tension of how God can be both saviour and judge. How Jesus can be the one who pardons the guilty and condemns the guilty. It doesn't solve the contradiction that is in the very character of God as he reveals himself to Moses. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. How do you reconcile that conflict or that seeming contradiction in the very character of God? How does Jesus reconcile being saviour from sin and judge of sin? How does he do it? By becoming sin for us. And at the cross, Jesus took all of our sin upon himself. And in the words of the creed, he was conceived of the Virgin Mary and crucified under Pontius Pilate. And at the cross, he was cast into the darkness. At the cross, he experienced the full emptiness as he was alienated from God. And the judge put himself in the dock as our substitute. And he was found guilty, not for his sin, but for our sin, so that we can be forgiven and filled with the same Holy Spirit who conceived him as we put our trust in him to save us and not in all these other things. And as we do, he doesn't just become our savior, he becomes our defender. As John says, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate, we have a defense attorney with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. 
And guys, it is knowing Christ was born to rescue me. He was born to defend me. He was born to deliver me. And he does it by dying for me. It's that that tells you the measure of his steadfast, never giving up, never running out love for you. And that is what can give you the hope and the courage to face what you have got to face in your own story. You see, choosing to obey God and to stay with Mary, this is going to cost Joseph, isn't it? I mean, think of the options. People, will th- uh, people are either going to think that he has slept with Mary or that someone else has. And both of those are going to carry huge social stigma for him. That's why the angel says to him, Joseph, do not fear. Because it is knowing what God is up to this first Christmas that gives him the courage he is going to need to walk the path that God has set before him. And it will do the same for all of us. Listen, if you're here and you're not yet a Christian, if you're going to take that first step of faith and say, okay, I'm going to trust Christ, I'm going to side with him, that is going to require courage. But knowing he came for you and he died for you and he rose again for you, it's knowing that that will give you the courage to take that step. And it'll it'll be what does it for us who are already Christians. Because if, like Joseph, you're facing a dark period, maybe in your own life, maybe in your extended family, and you are wondering how you are ever going to get through this, know that Christ was born for you to save you. And let the light and the hope of that break into your darkness. Or maybe, for some of you, to side with Jesus, like Joseph sided with Mary, and to admit, maybe to your friends, to your, to your colleagues, your wider family, that you believe in a Jesus who came to save, but will come to judge, maybe that will cost you, like, maybe it'll cost you to side with Jesus, like it's going to cost Joseph to side with Mary. Well, see him coming into the world to side with you. And that is what will give you the courage and the security to side with him. He did it for you. Now we go and do it for him. One last thing. Guys, we live in polarized times. In society and in churches. And to love our neighbor as Jesus calls us to, to love our brothers and sisters requires hope and courage. Well, in verse 19, Matthew says that Joseph, being a just man, was unwilling to put her to shame. Okay, so get that. Joseph, he is both righteous, but he's also kind. He's godly, but he's also good. Guys, we need that combination of righteousness and kindness more than ever. And seeing Christ come this first Christmas to treat us better than we could ever deserve to be treated. And knowing he's done that for you, he treats you way better than you deserve to be treated. He treats you with grace. He treats me with grace. 
gives us the grace to treat others with grace. The grace that, like Joseph, loves and stays. The grace that makes us righteous and kind. Let's pray.